I really, really liked all the sharing. That's good. Uh, this reinforces the fact that when we come to church, we're coming to hear from God. We're not coming to hear from one person. So um, I'm sure with all that sharing today that some of you, the reason God brought you here wasn't even to hear necessarily God's word from me. There's too much going on here. God's word from me, but maybe God's word from Hal, or maybe God's word from Tanya, or maybe God's word from Jeremy, etc. Okay? So the reason we come to church is to hear from God, not one person. Uh, good. All right. First Daniel chapter 20. Where were we? Here we go. So we've got a couple characters. Character number one is Saul. Saul is currently the king of Israel. He's the king of Israel, but God has already fired him. God has told Saul that he's done with him. Now, the righteous thing to do in that situation when God says you're fired would be to resign, but he wants to hold on to his position. Many of us are like that. You want the position. You don't want the responsibility. You just want the position. Then you have Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan is the second in line. He naturally should be the king. Jonathan is a warrior, brave guy, full of faith, loves God, loves his dad, loves his country. He also loves David. David is actually the one that God has hired for the job. He has fired Saul and hired David because David uh, trusts him and loves him with all of his heart. So these are the characters. Then, of course, we have God. I agree. Now... What I tell you about narratives in the Bible is to think through who you are in the story. Who are you in the story? Now, when I describe Saul, immediately everybody said, well, I'm not that guy, because he's bad. There are two other characters. That's me. I'm either David or I'm either Jonathan. I'm the good guy. Well, okay. Who are you in the story? That's question number one. What does it say about you? When the Bible talks about these people, God is not gossiping about these people. He is holding up the Bible as a mirror and saying, see how you are? We're much more likely to see the sin in other people than in ourselves. Is that not the case? You know, if somebody has uh, junk on their face, it's much easier for you to see it in other people than yourself because you can't look at yourself. This is how we are. Okay, who are we in the story? What does it say about us? And then what does it say about God? Where is God in the story? And what does it say about him? All right. Now, last week we saw Jonathan and David. And we talked about being uh, having friendships, real biblical friendships, that were um, made me uncomfortable. <laughs> because Jonathan and David were super close. It says he loved him as his own soul. And we talked about being affectionate with each other as men and as women. Right? We talked about the scripture where it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And then somebody did that to me last week. Please only do things when God moves you to do them. <laughs> Especially if it's with me. I'm saying this for your safety. All right. So we talked about God's uh, love for his people, and we talked about the word hesed. And hesed means loving someone loyally. So Jonathan is between his dad and his best friend David. David says, listen, Jonathan, this dude's trying to kill me. Jonathan says, I have an idea. Let's make up a lie. Let's lie 
and say the reason that you're not here at the feast, because there's a feast about to happen, we're going to read in a second. Let's lie uh, so that you can be safe. We're going to test to see whether or not my dad is really a sociopathic murderer like you say he is. Currently, Jonathan is not sure whether or not his dad is as crazy and as murderous as David really thinks he is, okay? So Jonathan says, well, in order for you to be safe, David, we're going to make up some lie as to why you're not coming to the feast. And we discussed this moral dilemma, so-called righteous deception, where you lie for righteous reasons. And I took the position that you should not lie even for righteous reasons. We're going to see how uh, Jonathan's brilliant plan of lying worked out for him. All right. Now, we left at verse 17. Jonathan made David swear again. They swore an oath to each other that they would take care of each other because as things go naturally, David was supposed to kill Jonathan and his entire family once he became the king over Israel. Jonathan knows that David is going to become the king. Now, David knows that Saul wants to kill him. Why does David think Saul wants to kill him? It may have to do with that minor incident when he chucked a spear at him multiple times. Might, that might convince a person that you want him dead. You know, if you're hanging out, it's just a hint. What is it? Hunting season's about to happen? Is that what you guys do? You hunt? That's a, hunting season's about to happen, okay? If your friend constantly is shooting at you and not the deer, he did not forgive you for scratching his car. You understand what I'm saying to you? This is what happened with Saul and David. Let's just get to the passage. Verse 18. Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon. This is one of the festivals that you have in Israel. And you will be missed, because David's not going to be there. Missed means people are going to recognize that you're gone. Saul isn't going to miss him like, oh, boo-hoo, where's David? He's just going to recognize that he's not there. Because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, go look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. So what's happening here? Jonathan is making up a code for David because what Jonathan is saying is, look, one of two things is true. Either my dad really wants to kill you, or he doesn't. I'm going to go to this feast and we're going to check out whether or not my dad really wants to murder you. If he doesn't want to murder you, this is going to be the code. And if I send you the code that you're safe, I swear to God you're going to be fine. Come back. Trust me. Now look, he doesn't even send the boy with the message that David is safe because Jonathan is saying we don't trust anybody right now. He's applying wisdom. He does not know definitively that his dad is crazy yet. But... He knows David, so he's applying wisdom to the situation. He also says, look, there's going to be another code. If you are not safe and my dad really is crazy and wants to kill you, then you got to go. But notice how he says it. He says, verse 22, look at verse 22 again. If I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go. 
But look what it says. For the Lord has sent you away. He does not say, go, because my dad has exiled you from the land. He does not say, go, because you just got a tough shake, buddy. He does not say, go, because life is so unfair to you, David. He does not say, go, and feel sorry for yourself all the time. Or like Tanya said, cry all the time for yourself. He didn't say that. What does he say? Go, because the Lord has sent you away. Jonathan recognizes that if David has to go, it is not ultimately because of his death. It is ultimately because of God's sovereign decision. God is sovereign. God is in control. I mean, think about this. Couldn't God have just zapped King Saul and evaporated him? Obviously, if David had to flee, it is because there is a purpose of God behind it. Now, some of you are really intelligent. You're thinking, well, if God's so sovereign, well, psychopathic and going to kill you, you can't say, oh, God's sovereign. Look, you lock your doors at night, don't you? Most of you? You, uh, you got insurance in your car? Why? That's not a lack of faith. That's just plain wisdom, okay? And the state of Maine requires it. That makes Brian angry because he feels that Maine controlling his life in Romans 13, Brian. Okay. I know, I know, Brian. But think about this. This is the tension that you live in as a Christian, okay? Look, if Genesis 1-1 is true, that means God controls everything. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know how he did that? He did it with a word. He didn't have any blueprints or architecture or anything. He just spoke the thing into existence. If that is true, and you worship a God that powerful, you honestly believe that a dude like Saul can get in the way of his plans? Of course not. Think about it. Well, God is sovereign, but he also gave you a mind. You know, Jesus said the greatest commandment? He said, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your what? Mind. Be wise. Okay? If you are in a situation where a person is constantly being crazy, you got to put yourself, uh, you got to put some distance between yourself and the other person. Okay? You can't say, oh, God's sovereign. Uh, if you're in a dangerous situation, Wear your seatbelt. Now I'm preaching to myself. Wear your seatbelt. There's a whole host of wise things you need to do, but here's the other side of it, though. You have to realize that when bad situations come into your life, I know that this is a very difficult thing to say, but I promise you, when bad situations happen to you, God wasn't up in heaven going, oh, man, what in the world am I going to do? You know, Kyle, I didn't know that that happened, that that was going to happen. There's nothing that catches God by surprise. So what you have to do in those situations is go, okay, God, what's the purpose here? You realize when I was a kid, I moved around. You know, I did, I did uh, three states in four different boroughs in the eighth grade. Okay? I, I, I moved around all up and down the United States of America. And I remember being a kid saying, how would, you, how would you do this to me, God? I make friends? And then, boom, they're gone. I'm going to move again. 
I endured all types of craziness that it would take 58 million hours to download to you. You wouldn't even believe some of the stuff that I saw and heard. You wouldn't believe it. I remember one time I was in the, uh, I was in the mental hospital one time. Yeah, it went crazy. It's all right. It's in the hospital. And the, 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 the social worker was talking to me, and she said, what? So I was explaining about 15% of my life to her. She starts crying. This is a true story. She starts crying, and she basically called me a superhero because I wasn't on drugs and blah, 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 blah. You know what God said to me? Do not listen to her. Stop with the self-pity, Andrew. I have a plan for you. And you know what? And, and now that I can look back at my life and see the ways that God has used me, here's something very, very practical. I was always a new kid in school, always. So I had to find ways very quickly to be able to relate to people from all types of cultures and all types of regions. You think that's helpful for the things that we do here? I was always a new kid. So now when I'm at Planned Parenthood, I literally, you know, whatever, I can relate to anybody. Like literally in the same, same day in Planned Parenthood, I got gangsters, okay? Some real life gangsters. I can relate to them, okay? Stephanie, probably not, all right? I can't relate to the gangsters. But I can also talk to businessmen. I can talk to skaters. I can talk to a whole host of people. You know why? Because God had dragged me all up and down the East Coast when I was a kid. See, God did that. Yeah, I had crazy circumstances in my life, but God did that. I got, I mean, you know, my whole left arm is sliced to shreds. You know, I had, I had one of my meltdowns. That actually happened in the, uh, in the hospital. I don't know why I'm laughing at that. It's just the irony because you're supposed to be taking care of me. But hey, my whole left arm is shredded to pieces, right? I was in the park one day. I did a prayer for these people. These are Christians. Afterward, some young girl comes up to me and she says to me, yeah, so I wanted you to pray for me. And I'm like, okay, I just got done praying for you guys. So, And then she shows me her arm. She was cutting herself and she said, I saw your arm and I knew that you'd understand. All this craziness that happened in my life, God sovereignly put me through those things so that I could help other people. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that God comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? So that we can comfort others with the comfort that God gave to us. There are bigger things happening in your pain than yourself. In the sovereignty of God... God has decided to heal us through each other's mutual pain and comfort. That's kind of a crazy... But think about this. Who wants to be like Jesus? Nobody wants to be like Jesus. You guys are honest today. You don't want to be like Jesus. You know why I know you don't want to be like Jesus? Because the minute that God gives you some pain, you're out of town. How did Jesus heal you, by the way, according to Isaiah 53, which your church is named after? By his stripes, his wounds, you're healed. You want to help heal people? Guess what? You're going to get wounded. And then, you know, when I was a kid, yeah, I grew up, you see these nice little well-defined lines on Jesus' back, you know. With all those little stripes. I mean, they were bad, but that's not what happened. 
you know, when you were getting whipped prior to crucifixion, they would beat you half to death. Many people died before they were even nailed to the cross. I said this before, the Romans had doctors. They had a doctor down there to see if you were going in a hypovolemic shock because they wanted to torture you most efficiently. They didn't want you to die during the whipping. They wanted you to get nailed to a tree. So when the scripture says, by his wounds you were healed, that's what it's talking about. The guy's back was completely torn open. Still, Jesus talks about intestines being exposed. By his wounds you were healed. You want to enter into that ministry? Isn't that what Paul said in Colossians? I am filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What he's saying is, I am continuing the work of healing people as I am wounded and healed and comforted by God. So, there you are in a horrible situation. Now look, David, if Saul is crazy and wants to kill David, that means David is going to have to leave. What is he leaving? His mom, his dad, his brothers, everything that's familiar to him, everything and everyone that he loves, he's going to have to leave. That is suffering. That's terrible. You know, me, when I was moving around, I was always moving around with my mom and my brothers. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's not cool to move around all the time when you're a kid, but at least I had my mom and my brothers with me. He had to leave everybody including his best friend Jonathan, who believed in him. That is industrial strength suffering. Some of you parents are like this. You go crazy because your kids are going through stuff. You say, my kids shouldn't have to go through that. Well, in one sense, you're right. But in the other sense, how do you know what your kids should have to go through? Did you plan your kid's life or did God plan your kid's life? Do you know what your kid's supposed to go through? Do you know who the, who, what type of man or a woman your child is going to grow up to be? Do you know how God's going to use your child? Maybe as parents we should stop worrying so much about what our kids are going through and start worrying about what God's purposes are for them. Samuel's parents, it said, Samson's parents inquired about what God's purpose and mission for the boy would be. Have you thought about that? All right, so the Lord has sent you away. He is sovereign, verse 23. And for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between me and you forever. He's referring back to that deal that they made to keep each other alive. Verse 24, so David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. So there's a new moon, there's a feast. Everybody's sitting down to eat food. The king sat on the seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. David occupied a high place in Saul's pecking order because David was Saul's number one military guy. He was the special forces Navy SEAL commander, okay? Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. Okay, now here's what's going on. This was a religious feast, okay? And um, you would become basically unclean in the religious feast. There's a lot of things that could happen that could make you unclean. If you came in contact with a dead body, you were then unclean. You had to sit it out. Uh, there are a whole host of other things, I'm not going to list them, that would make you unclean. So 
Saul is looking at David's empty seat and he goes, man, he, this guy, he's unclean. Something happened to him. Something made him unworthy to sit with us. Now here's Saul and he's completely and totally insane with jealousy. Okay? Here's a principle for you. When you are jealous of a person, tell me if I'm right or wrong. When you are jealous of a person, isn't it so much easier to believe that they're unclean? I mean, you don't necessarily have evidence that they've done anything actually wrong. But you know they're unclean. Look what Saul said. Surely he's unclean. Surely. I'm positive. Some of you believe negative things about people positively, and you have no clue what you're talking about. But because you're jealous, you feel that you can pass judgment on other people. Here's the ironic part. Who really was unclean at the table? Saul. I mean, Saul is the one with the murder in his heart. You're going to see this in a second. Saul is the one that attempted to murder David multiple times through multiple ways. Saul was the one that used his own daughters to try to destroy David. Saul was the one that deployed all of his soldiers to attack David. But David is the one who's unclean. I think you're missing the point there, Saul. Be very, very careful. You know, the scripture says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know what it says that your heart can deceive you? Everybody knows that verse. If you don't know that verse, it's in Jeremiah 17, 9. Everybody knows that verse, but nobody thinks it's them. You know, it's like Matthew 7, when Jesus said, everybody, you know, all these people say to me, Lord, Lord. And he said, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. People are like, man, I need to read this passage to so-and-so. Nobody ever stops to consider, maybe that's talking about me. When it says that your heart is deceitful, you know that passage, but many of us trust ourselves a lot. When you're in conflict with a person, it is so easy to believe that they are unclean, that something is wrong with them. The last thing in the world for you to do is look at yourself and say, maybe I'm the one who's unclean. That's why Psalm 139 says, David asked God, look at me and see if there's any deceitful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Why? Because David knows that his heart is unclean, and he wants God to show him what the problem is. Well, Saul doesn't want to do that. He knows for a fact that David is unclean. Verse 27, But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan his son, Now what? Why does Saul ask Jonathan where David is? He knows that Jonathan is David's best friend. And he knows that they are so close that David would not miss a big event like this without Jonathan knowing. So he says to Jonathan, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Now that's a very strange way of addressing David. What does he call him? The son of Jesse. Why doesn't he just say David? You know why? He hated the guy so much he didn't even want to mention his name. It's sad. Good. Yes, he hated the guy so much, he didn't even want his name mentioned. How many of us are like that? You sit and have a good day, the person's name gets mentioned, and the whole thing explodes into flames. Here's a hint that you might be Saul, okay? If you're walking around having a relatively good time, 
and then that person's name gets mentioned and it wrecks your day? You might be Saul. If you would, it meant when I was in school, okay, when I was in high school, there were people that I would not allow my friends to mention their names. This was a mutual thing, by the way. There were people I knew, okay, we can't talk about her, can't say his name, got a problem. Hopefully, we have matured beyond high school. But if you've got a person, now look, I'm not trivializing this because some of, the, some of these people's names may be connected to very traumatic events, okay? Uh, so I get it that names could be connected to trauma, but even in that sense, don't you want to be free? You want to be free, don't you? You don't want to be enslaved to that for the rest of your life. He doesn't want to mention the guy's name because a name is connected to identity. Name is connected to identity, and so he doesn't want to be reminded of the identity of this man who loves God, whose God is completely blessing and showing that he is going to be the next in line. Jonathan answered Saul. Now listen to how Jonathan answers his dad. David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now... If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Shannon's shaking her head. Now that is a fairly elaborate what? Lie. He's lying again. You go, Andrew, this is a very, very delicate situation. I mean, the man's dad is, is after him. You got to use wisdom. I was just reading a, a, a commentary, and the, and the guy said, you know, these things can be excused in exigent circumstances. Exigent means just real, you know, high-pressure circumstances. Well, I already gave my attempt, my feeble attempt, to tell, to get you to tell the truth in all circumstances. Okay, but, but I will let Saul make my argument for me this week. So here's Jonathan. He's trying to protect his friend. He tells this slick little lie to get out of conflict with his dad. This is how we are. Oh, we're in conflict. Dad's going to be mad at me. I'm going to lie. All right. Well, how does Saul react? Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. Yeah, that's what his lie got him. Did it work? Saul's anger is kindled against Jonathan. Now, why would Saul be angry? Well, there's a couple reasons. One... Saul might have saw through the lie in the first place. I mean, when you're a father, you know when your kids are lying. You grow up around this person, I know when my kids are lying. I'll sit them down and I'll say, hey man, tell me what happened. And the eyes get all flittery. I say, you're lying. I hope you guys understand that most of the people that we lie to are the people closest to us. Is that not the case? You generally are not going to lie to random strangers. I'm not going to go to a random stranger and say, hey, I'm Superman. Did you know that? I'm Superman. You're not going to do that. Most of the time that you lie, it's you're lying to somebody close to you. Well, here's a newsflash that you might not know. Come close. Most of the time they know you're lying to them. Most of the time 
the person that you're so slickly lying to already knows that you're a liar. Here's your elaborate lie with all these details. Oh, the city is named. The brother is, the, oh, it's the brother, blah, blah, blah. Big elaborate lie. And Saul's looking at Jonathan like, I know you, man. You're lying. Because Saul's anger got kindled. Here's another thing about lying. When you lie to people close to you, it actually makes them more angry at you than if you would just tell the truth. Tell the truth. David is scared that you're going to murder him. Okay, I don't believe that about you, Dad. But David's scared that you're going to murder him, so he's not here. Okay? I feel like that would have been a better uh, response than the, your silly little lie. So here's the thing. We have all a bunch of reasons for why we lie to each other, why you lie to people who are closest to you and all the rest of it, but you're... you're if you lie and you get found out, that is probably the worst of all possible worlds. I'm begging you, don't lie. Okay, verse 30, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, now listen, listen how he responds to his son. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Wow. This is Hebrew, okay, and I'm not being funny, but this is, he, he basically called him an SOB, is what is basically the idea, all right? Now, think about this. This is not a one-on-one -on -one conversation. This is a conversation, it's a religious gathering, okay? It's a religious gathering. They're celebrating God and the new moon and all the rest of it. All the people are there. Priests are there. Everybody's there. And Saul goes, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Here's Jonathan. Awkward. Okay? Saul is completely losing it. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? Well, where did this come from? The shame of my mother's nakedness. What are you talking about? Nobody brought that up. I was just saying, I don't want you to kill my best friend, okay? Where did the shame of... What? You see, jealousy makes you irrational. And here's something very, very basic that I wish I could explain to Saul. If Saul was here, I'd say, Saul, if you're worried about Jonathan's mom's honor, because he said, he basically said, you're shaming your mother. Two seconds before, what did he say? Your mother is a pervert and she's rebellious. You just blasted her in front of all these people. And then in the next line, you're saying, you don't care about your mother's honor. This is irrational. You're irrational. Okay? You are doing the very thing that you are accusing Jonathan of. He's losing his mind. Here's the thing about jealousy, and here's the thing about being an unrepentant person. When you are an unrepentant person, it is flash and burn. Everybody in your life gets hit. Everyone. If you don't get the, the, the jealousy thing down and your hard heart down and the unrepentant thing down, you are going to massacre everybody around you, and it's always going to be the people closest to you. He's yelling at his son, who loves him to death, literally. You're going to see that later. And he just disrespected and dishonored his wife publicly. How does a person do that? He is so gone with rage and anger that he's completely lost himself. Now, by all purposes, Saul's wife was probably there, right? 
I mean, this is a this is a community meal. Uh, no doubt she would have been there. No doubt she would have probably had a seat of honor. And there she is. Her son is getting yelled at, and then she is getting disrespected and dishonored. Verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse, there it is again, lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. So how does he try to motivate Jonathan to do what he wants him to do? First thing he does is he tries to shame him into doing what he wants him to do. This is, this is a very common tool of the devil. I still don't completely understand it. We're at Planned Parenthood today, trying to defend the lives of little innocent little babies. And some dude walks by and says, you should be ashamed of yourself. Well, why, why would I be ashamed of trying to help a helpless person? Like, if you saw a grown man, right, pounding on a little infant, You'd probably say to that guy, what is wrong with you? You're a grown man, you're going to beat up on a little infant? You should be ashamed of yourself. Now let's say, okay, Ian jumps in the middle of that and says, hit me, but don't hit the infant. Would any of us say, Ian, you should be ashamed of yourself trying to defend that little baby. But there we go, okay, we're at Planned Parenthood, and I'm sorry, it's a very serious moment, and the guy says, you should be ashamed of yourself. All right? This is irrational. This is what the devil does. Now, when we look at it like that, it's funny, but many of you have been stopped from the work of God because of your shame. Like, you, you did something or whatever, some horrible sin, or okay, and God comes to you and says, hey, man, I have forgiven you. Hey, lady, you are washed completely and totally clean. Jesus paid for that. Jesus died for that. And the devil's saying, man, you, I'm going to shame you publicly. You can't do anything. See, Jonathan is hiding David, one, because he loves him, but two, he realizes that for the kingdom of Israel to advance, this is the role he has to play. And Saul is trying to shame him into going back on that. And the devil is shaming many of you from advancing the kingdom in the specific way that God has for you. And I'll just tell you as a general principle, if you, to the degree that you're hanging out in unwarranted shame, remember we talked about shame a couple weeks ago, sometimes shame is warranted and you should have it, but then when you bring it to the cross, you've got to leave it at the cross and go on. We talked about that. So you're walking around in unwarranted shame and it's stifling you, it's stopping you from being and doing everything God wants you to be and do. And actually, if you listen to that voice of shame that stops you from progressing with God, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be at a standstill and you're actually going to commit more acts that create more shame and it will be in a cycle of shame and self-destruction. Is that not true? Here's the first thing. From the mouth of his own father. Think about this. Sometimes the agents of Satan in your life to bring shame to you are the people closest to you. Be very careful. His own father shaming him publicly. <coughs> Be careful, by the way. Somebody sins against you and they've, like, they've repented. They've apologized. Be careful. 
that you're not the one that keeps bringing that shameful thing up again into the face of your spouse or your friend or your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad. You want to keep bringing stuff up that they've already repented of. I'm not talking about somebody who's unrepentant and just walking around being crazy. I'm talking about somebody who has repented and gone to the cross and you're so angry that you got to constantly bring that thing up. Now some of you are like, yeah, you tell them. Well, if you're the person who did the shameful thing and you're unrepentant, it's not for you. Okay? It's not for you. Let the shame bring you to the cross and repent. I'm talking about the person who has repented. The first thing he uses is shame. Here's the second thing. Selfishness. Look what he says again. As long as this dude lives on the earth, you're not going to have a kingdom, man. And notice what it says. Your kingdom will not be established. Here's a challenge. Whose kingdom are you building? He said, I'm building God's kingdom. Don't you, you know, worship kingdom discipleship. Kingdom of God for the sake. We're building God's kingdom. Are you sure? Are you positive? You say, I'm positive. I know. You know? I thought we just said the heart is deceitful. Whose kingdom are you building really? Well, let's just go there. Where does most of your money go to? Like, whose interests do most of your dollars go to? Now, I'm not saying sell 53, whatever. We say this every week. I don't care necessarily if you give to sell 53, as long as you're giving and you're not a slave to yourself. But Jesus Christ said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. So if most of your dollar bills are going to yourself, then you're building your own kingdom. Kingdoms cost money to build. Where's most of your time going? What are most of your Facebook posts about? Here's a crazy, 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 crazy one. Well, Tanya already talked about it, so it's not crazy. What are most, who are most of your tears about? Who are most of your anger about? Here's one. What makes you the most happy? You see, that was a convicting part of the, of the Tanya thing. I was like, man, you know, are, are you most happy when something happens good for you or good for the kingdom? See, all these things are markers as to whether or not you're building your kingdom or God's kingdom. Your kingdom will not be established as long as this dude is on the earth. Notice, he says, neither you nor your kingdom. You want to make a name for yourself. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Here is Saul in front of all these people saying he must surely die. This is a guy who has been fighting the wars of Israel. This is a guy who has been doing Saul's job for him. And now he's saying he must certainly die. Because I love you, Jonathan. I want your kingdom to be established. So the guy's got to die. Now, on one hand, you're like, well, it's this guy's dad. You know, he wants him to inherit the kingdom. Is Saul really concerned about Jonathan? Well, we'll see. Verse 32, Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? 
What did he do wrong? Look what, look what Saul does. Remember, how, did we, how do we know that Saul wanted to kill David? What did we say? He tucked the spear at him, right? Isn't that what we said? Look at the next verse. But Saul hurled the spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. He threw a spear at his own son. So two seconds ago, you were saying, if the son of Jesse is alive, you won't be able to inherit the kingdom. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to chuck this spear at you through your chest so that you won't be able to inherit the kingdom. You realize, Saul, that if Jonathan is dead, he can't rule anything. This exposes the fact that Saul had no real care about Jonathan inheriting the kingdom. All he was worried about was that David was a threat to his kingdom and Jonathan was just a piece upon in his game. And when Jonathan wouldn't play along, then you can die too. What other use is there for you? Woo! Some of us are like that. The minute somebody doesn't play along with your game, you want to spare them. You want them out of your life. You know, that, that phrase, you know, you're dead to me. You know, horrible parents say that to their kids. You're dead to me. The minute the person doesn't play along with your game, they're gone. And they start, you can start saying and doing crazy things about people publicly, people that you were cool with, and then whatever happened, now you're going to publicly blast them and do whatever because now you're mad at them. Because in reality, people are just there for you. You don't really love those people. You want them to do what you want them to do. They stroke your ego. They touch some part of you that, that is benefiting you somehow, some way, whether it's financially, emotionally, whatever, and the minute they cannot produce that for you anymore, you don't really have much interest in them. You can say, oh, I care about you. You know, in that verse above, he sounds like a dad who cares so much about his son's future. And then he exposes himself as somebody who didn't care at all. Be careful. You say, man, I'm just saying this because I care about you. How do you react to your friends when they don't go along with you? How do you react to people who don't necessarily agree with you all the time? How do you react to people who are really no benefit to you? That's the measure of whether or not you love someone, by the way, is if you'll love them in spite of the fact that they're not giving you much. I mean, can you really know if you really love a person if it's a completely mutual thing? Verse 34, Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. You want to talk about love? Look at that text. He was grieved for who? David. You just called my mom a pervert in front of everybody. You called me, a, you, you said I should be ashamed of myself. You threw a spear at me. I'm in fierce anger. Why? For David. You disgraced David. 
by wanting to put David to death, you disgraced him. He didn't insult David. All he said was, bring him here and put him to death. But for Saul to say that David was publicly worthy of death in front of all those people in Jonathan's mind was disgraceful. And he's so full of rage at his dad that he couldn't even eat because somebody had said something bad about David. I mean, the dude just dodged an, a, a spear from his own father. Now, if, look, if you ran into, if I ran into Brian, he's like, I'd say, what's wrong with you? And he said, yeah, man, my dad, you know, he shot at me. He called my mom a name. He dissed me in front of everybody. I'd say, oh, man, that's terrible. You know, come here. I'll have Ian give you a hug. <laughs> that's terrible, man. I got to pray for you. And we'd sit down, and we, you know, I mean, that's a really terrible, and that's not even a thought in Jonathan's mind. Have you ever loved anyone like that to where you would only be worried about the other person? This is a friend. Just a friend. Not a blood brother, not a blood relative, not a husband, wife, mom, dad, just his friend. That's how much you love them. tell you, Jonathan is one of the most amazing characters of all time. Don't you realize that what Saul said was true? Not the mom part, but the other part where he says, if this guy is on the planet, you can't rule. That is true. If Jonathan had David killed, then guess what? He is the next guy to rule. The guy has zero self-interest. He's only worried about the kingdom. And he's only worried about his friend. This is why I say real friendships have to be supernatural. You cannot love a person like this out apart from the Spirit of God. Yeah. When you're going you're going up against God's anointing, what do you do? Now look. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him was a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As soon as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? That's the code that you got to go, David, remember. And Jonathan called out to the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Here's, here's a bonus. Please keep a secret. If the person tells you, please don't tell other people. You know, don't, I'm not talking about, you know, if the person's like, I'm going to kill myself on Friday. That's not a secret you should keep. But you know what I'm talking about. Somebody tells you something in confidence. And then it accidentally slips. Don't be like that. Be a good friend. If somebody tells you something in confidence, the only other person you should talk to about it is God. Can you, can you do that, please? Jonathan is a friend to the end. You know the big dramatic stuff where he's 
dodging the spear for his friend or making this amazing covenant for his friend and all this stuff. That's good, but you know, real friendship is somebody that you can say, I'm going to tell this person this and it's not going to go anywhere else. Please be that type of friend for people. Nobody knew the matter, only David and Jonathan. Verse 40, Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to them, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. David weeping the most. Now, uh, you know, David, between David and Jonathan, David is a tough guy. Okay? Jonathan was a warrior too, but David took on Goliath when Jonathan was on the sidelines not doing anything. David was the alpha male in the situation. And he's weeping the most. Men, we talked about this last week. We talked about it again. There's nothing wrong or effeminate about showing emotion, about being an emotional person. That's not wrong. I was listening to a podcast couple days ago. I don't know why I listened to this particular one, because it's really terrible. And the guy was mocking men who cried during worship. Yeah, man, man, you just cried during worship. This is a person who's so in love with God at the moment, it brings tears to his eyes. Are you going to mock that? That's effeminate. What's the guy supposed to do? Just stand there like a statue. And the guy's in love with God, and he knows that God loves him. Of all the Jesus is your boyfriend song, those are terrible. We're the bride of Christ, gentlemen. Okay? Now, I was talking about this a couple days ago. If I could consult the Holy Spirit, I'd say, look, man, we got to come up with a different metaphor, okay? Because it works for the girls, not so much for the guys. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit did not um, consult me when he used that metaphor of the church. It's the final metaphor you see in the Bible. In Revelation, at the end, the church is called the bride. She's coming down. She's beautiful, prepared for her husband. That's our role. So if you're in worship and you're caught with the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for you and you start crying, that's the most masculine thing you can do. Because it means finally, finally, that your tears are used for something important. I was watching this video. This guy, he just got a medal of honor. And they were on the battlefield, and his buddy got shot. His buddy was dying. And uh, it, it's this crazy, crazy video. You can Google it. It's a pretty, pretty, touching, pretty touching moment. And he brought his friend on the chopper. And, you know, his friend had his hand up. You know, he gives a little army high five. The guy went and kissed his friend on the head, and he went back to fight. You're going to tell me that that's an effeminate guy? Whatever. How many people have you shot or shot at in the last month or whatever? These are tough dudes, man. But they love one another. The other guy, by the way, ended up dying. So that was the last moment he had with his friend. I'll tell you what. I guarantee you that dude has no regrets. I guarantee you he does not regret hugging and kissing his friend. He's talking about it in tears about his friend that died there on the battlefield. So men, you know, you got good friends. Or you got kids. Oh, you know, my kids know I love them. I don't need to do the huggy, you know. Ugh. What do you mean? What do you mean? No, they don't. You need to hug them. You need to kiss them. 
if they're little boys, you got to kiss them. You got to do it. And, and you know what? It's in there somewhere in you, right? You know how I know? You know how I know? Because the scripture says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Scripture says that Jesus wept over Lazarus. You going to tell me you're more manly than Jesus? You're not more manly than Jesus. So I'm pleading with myself, and then by extension you, get in touch with the emotions that God gave you. I know some of you right now, ah, psychobabble, get in touch with your emotions. Get in touch with your emotions, brothers. It'll make you a more complete human being. Jonathan is weeping more than David. No, vice versa. David is weeping more than Jonathan. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Jonathan says to David, Man, just go in peace, David. You know one of the last things that Jesus said to us before he left in the Gospels? He says, my peace I leave with you. You know what one of the, uh, we've been looking at friendship here. You know what one of the roles of a friend is? We are peace bringers to our friends. Do you bring peace to your friends? Now think about this. How did Jonathan bring peace to David? First of all, Remember earlier, he reminded John, David of the sovereignty of God. That is a way of bringing peace to his friend. He said, man, God is behind this. And then as they're leaving, he says, go in peace because we have, we have sworn both in the name of the Lord. Reminds them of God and reminds them of their covenant together. So as a friend, when your friend is going, and they got horrible things going on. Do you sit there in the swamp with them and go, yeah, man, this is so terrible. This is hard. I can't believe he said that and she said that and he did that and blah, blah, blah. And you're just cycling in just badness. Do you have anything to say that can bring some peace? Anything. I mean, on the one hand, it's good to relate to your friends and commiserate with them, right? I mean, Job's friends, they just kind of sat there and the in the grossness for seven days and didn't say anything. They did a very good job. And then they started preaching and then, you know, and, you know <laughs> they started judging Job for his pain. When, you're, when you have friends, do you judge them for their pain? Do you let them stew in their pain? See, this is a, it's a heavy thing to be a friend, huh? You gotta tell some real fine lines. You can't let them sit in self-pity, but you can't judge them either. You can't necessarily preach to them, hey, Romans 8.28, huh? 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 Yeah, Romans 8.28 says God works everything for the good. Man, you need wisdom to be a good friend. Some of us are lazy friends. Oh, oh, okay, Tom, you're, you're in a bad situation. You're a kind of moody guy. Well, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Huh? Huh? Well, in that moment, that text might be what he needs, but how about you pray a little bit for your friend before you go open your mouth? Can you do that? And say, God, make me a distributor of peace. Give me the wisdom to know what I should do and say and not do and not say to be a good friend to my friend in this moment. 
Remind your friends of the sovereignty of God. Love them above yourself. Remind them that they have peace in Jesus. All right. Let's play. Play. Pray. Pray. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for being such a good friend to us. Jesus, you know exactly what to say every time, all the time. God, give us ears to hear you. God, you know all of your friends in here need you. God, I pray that you would just um, meet with us now as we go to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, Proclaiming the Kingdom of God for the Sake of the City. For more resources, visit cell53.com.